Welcome to the 50th episode of Don't Trap, a podcast between two friends about the latest in politics, society, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. I'm Stephanie Pankilisan. And I'm Suidian Lee, and it's our 50th episode, and I'm actually really excited. Woo! <laughs> yes, yes, Stephanie's really excited Woo-hoo! too. It's a 50! I know, it's insane. Uh, I can't believe, I don't know what happened, I don't know how we oh got here. Oh my god, for any listener who's listened to us from day one, can you like send us a message? on Facebook or Instagram and we'll personally thank you with uh, I don't know do you want a voicemail recording of your choosing like a like a uh, anything you yeah, want yeah I mean if you stuck around since the first episode just give <laughs> us a message like we yeah. are so thankful I know I wouldn't probably have stuck around since the first episode but I'm glad you know I hope some of you out there have the only condition is no nudes of Sweden or I uh, <laughs> great that we have that on record but yes we're, for this episode, we're, I'm actually really excited to talk to our very own Stephanie Tankelisa and more about her journey as a budding journalist and documentarian. And I think, you know, we've talked with so many incredible people, incredible young Indonesians working to make their work heard, make their voices heard. And it's only fitting for the 50th episode to talk to Stephanie about what she's been doing, I don't know, for the last however many months and still continuing to do so. Yeah. Also explaining why I've been MIA. Well... This is not because I've been lazy. Far from it. <laughs> so, here's to it. So Stephanie, you just finished off your first year of graduate school in journalism. How do you feel? Exhausted. <laughs> just exhausted? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even done yet. So technically, I'm done with the majority of my courses, but I have an extra summer semester in which I'm focusing on uh, the documentary program. So I'm a master in journalism with a specialization in documentary work, which is uh, where I'm trying to take my journalism career in the next stage, in the next few years. So, not not audio. I'm sorry, guys. So your little jaunt back to Jakarta was not a vacation jaunt? Oh, God. I wish it was. I spent the first five days, like, applying for this grant to keep working on my documentary, and I'll still have to be applying to documentary grants because... I think the biggest misconception is that journalism is easy and um, takes a little bit of time to do, but I think it's actually the exact opposite. Can you talk a little bit more about your degree? Sure. So so that our listeners can know exactly what Stephanie got herself into. (laughs) Okay, sure. Um, So I uh, enrolled in the Columbia Journalism's program. So it's a one-year graduate school master of science degree in which we learn everything that is to do about journalism but not really so like um (laughs) basically you go in the first month was like our multimedia boot camp in which we learn how to take photos videos audio and like learn to edit them a little bit Mm -hmm. And then it's followed up by, like, it's called reporting, which is us going out into New York City and finding story from nothing and writing about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So basically what I chose to do is I focused on documentary, which is different from video in the sense that we're working on a long-term video, which is longer than like 10 minutes. So I'm working on my first film, which is going to be between 20 to 30 minutes. But I'm also trying to think about it in terms of like maybe making it into a feature film, mm-hmm. which is qualifies as more than 50 minutes long. And that's a whole new beast in itself. I think for a lot of people, when they first hear the word journalism, they usually just think, oh, you have to write a story or you yeah. have to cover this new story. When in fact, writing is a very small sliver of the actual thing, right? Yeah. And I think uh, when most people think about journalism, they think about daily reporting, which is a really important part of journalism, which, you know, you go to events and you cover the headlines of the day. And so, like, you go to press conferences, you find sources, you... You show up and things. You show up and you cover them, you write about them, and it's usually, like, a day turn. So you mm-hmm. finish it within a day, or some people even finished a few stories in a day. So, like, if for Indonesian listeners, like, the typical daily news reporting in the extreme would be the com, which is you're just reporting... What's going on right now? In the, in the, it's, it's basically fleshed out tweets. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for deadline reporters because it's like such an adrenaline rush and like you got to get all your facts straight and as quick as possible and you just have to go print. And that's a really admirable um, quality to have. True, true. I am not one of those people. <laughs> uh, even if I do write, I, I tend to be more of like, the more investigative type of reporter or a documentary maker. So I, I am interested in writing, but mm-hmm. if you think of Tempo or you think of like an investigative piece, that a long investigative piece that the New York Times does or ProPublica does, um, that requires literally finding nothing out of breadcrumbs, but these breadcrumbs are talking about a very special and important issue. And it's something that otherwise wouldn't really be reported on. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no press conference about a big injustice or something like that. So you got to find those specific cases. You have to convince people to talk to you because it's so much easier to get people to talk to you at an event or a press conference or when there's actually something going on. But when you know a story gets cold or when it's a story that people don't want to be told or not open to the press, it's a lot of work trying to find the relevant people and trying to get people to talk to you. I feel like for some investigative pieces, the story might not even be there yet until you work those necessary hours, weeks, months in order for the story to surface. I feel like with events, it's almost like the people you're interviewing, the sources you're interviewing are primed to give their opinions. Well, in this case, you really have to dig. And you will really have to craft the narrative yourself. Absolutely. And I've done I've done that daily reporting stuff as well. Like when I was 18, uh, I, I was working in the Jakarta Globe and I did like two or three stories a day. So I would just run around Jakarta. Yeah. There's this press conference here at the police or the presidential palace or there's, you know, the Jakarta bombing thing. You just go and you try to talk to people and they know why you're there and they understand that um, you need to talk to them. Um, and you need to get a soundbite or something. Yeah, you need to get a soundbite. <laughs> they get it. It's straightforward process. Whereas for investigative reporting, it's like, okay, you have a feeling that there's some big injustice going on in this thing. Uh, what is the story? What's the broken system? Mm-hmm. And who is it? Who's responsible for that? Is there? Is this a bigger, larger problem that 
is happening nationally or who are all the parties involved and for investigative pieces it's like the powers that be are generally a lot more reluctant to talk to you and be on the record um so that's kind of like the challenge there mm-hmm. so this is i'm just going to talk to you maybe through some of my reporting process and this one piece i did didn't really go anywhere mm-hmm. but i found out that there was this first um, LGBTQ homeless shelter for young adults in New York. There are a lot of LGBTQ shelters for uh, teenagers who are run away or rejected by their family, but there wasn't really much for those who are from 18 to like 29. Um, and this is also still a big problem. So I was like, okay, cool, let me do this happy story about, you know, this first... And it has been covered before, but this was when it was open, so I was going there like six months after it was opened mm-hmm. and you know no one else was there so I just showed up during lunchtime and like tried to talk to people who were smoking <laughs> and um so I thought they're you know they'll be happy about this and then I found out actually like there was a lot of security system set up there that made people really unhappy and made it very hard for them to go find a job and they get pat down every time they go inside and mm. the security personnel all change and like treated them kind of like not young adults but like prisoners in a way yeah so i mean i dug around and like, kind of got kicked out of the homeless shelter um but i got to talk to the ceo of the organization and um he acknowledged that you know things were going down And I think it was just, like, the presence of someone snooping around there and talking to people made them kind of nervous. And, like, it kind of helped improve the situation. So, like, even though I didn't end up publishing the piece, like, sometimes I really do believe that journalism is, like, a check towards, I think, complacency for people who are otherwise Mm well-intentioned. But, you know, like, they were... It was such a big organization, they can't be doing everything all at once and just making sure people are accountable for their actions. I'm curious because you mentioned earlier that you're interested in documentary, you're interested in these longer term stories. What drew you into that kind of journalism as opposed to something that, you know, some people might say is less, it's easier to do with like, say, breaking news or even other kinds of journalism? Why documentary? I don't think breaking news is easy. I just don't think I have the temperament for it. And you have the temperament for (laughs) documentary? I have the temperament of like... Uh, I'm Indonesian. I don't like to be rushed. Uh, I like marinating in my stories and really getting to know my sources and like um, developing those relationships and really maybe because I'm a nerd, I love reading court documents and finding things that nobody else is reading and finding all of this crazy stuff that I don't think a daily reporter can have the time to do. And... I think I'm pretty good at it. Like, even though I'm not in the investigative specialization, 
was talking to a publication about my documentary work and like how much I knew about it and she was just asking me questions and she was like are you in the stable investigative program and I was like no I'm in the documentary program but like (laughs) I don't know I'm a nerd I like finding things out and reading things through Uh, I think it's just like my personality type of like not wanting to leave stones unturned for some of our listeners who uh, unfortunately for our listeners in Indonesia you might need like a VPN or something to access Stephanie's Vimeo page to see her work uh, I um, have I have a YouTube as well because uh, my parents want to see my work so I uh, usually great. upload both things uh, <laughs> awesome you seem to in terms of your style of journalism and the stories you tell you seem to be drawn to covering stories about this fight against like systemic power imbalances yeah. Can you talk to me uh, a little yeah. bit more about that? Because that's not something that's necessarily easy to package oh God, no. as a story, yeah. right? I've been told that like I have one of a really hard story to do in a documentary. Um, so <laughs> just for people who don't know, I'm working on a documentary. Uh, working title is Bronx 120. Mm-hmm. It started out as um, it started out with this event in 2016 where. 700 law enforcement officers stormed down on one housing project in the Bronx and arrested 120 people, and so they were all gang members that terrorized the community. Mm-hmm. This is what prosecutors say is the largest indictment of any modern gang in New York City history. Mm-hmm. And so it was covered with a lot of fanfare and celebratory press coverage about this, with a few exceptions who were critical about it. And uh, the story wasn't heard of again. It was packaged as a as a nice new story instead of anything more yeah. than that. Nice success, yeah. Two outlets, The Nation and The Intercept, wrote about it in a way that's negative about it. But and then pretty much two years later, uh, nothing is you know being done about it. But yeah, it was lauded as this you know wonderful success by the NYPD Bronx Gang Squad and the federal prosecutors. But like. Once I started looking at the court documents, you're like, wait, these people are just like, at best, like low-level drug dealers selling marijuana, and some people are like pretty much relatively innocent, Mm -hmm. and it was like they were caught by the fact that they were friends with like maybe some people who did do bad things, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to do a story. Uh, It's been evolving, but like initially I was talking about it in terms of how you can be, you know considered guilty by association but i'm pivoting away from that concept towards this idea of okay like you know i want to tell the larger story about how people who grew up in projects such as this generally think that there's only two way out of the project's um education maybe Mm -hmm. but mostly it's like you're gonna be a basketball player and get a scholarship or you're gonna you know make music videos Mm -hmm. and a lot of the evidence consequently are like music videos and social media postings of these kids mostly our age you know like between 18 to 26 year olds who are just being themselves but happens to be hispanic or black uh and the law that they're using like palantir software and all of this different like high-tech surveillance systems to basically scrape all these people's social media postings and control that they're right. using this law that was created in the mm-hmm. 1970s to target criminalized large criminal organizations like the italian mobs who are like legitimately gunning people down on the street and mass mm-hmm. but 
ever since then, um, the law has now been increasingly used to incarcerate black and brown people. Like a study of over 2,000 RICO cases by Jordan Blair Woods um, found between 2002 and 2011 that 86% of RICO prosecutions prosecuted people of color. And RICO is that yeah, RICO is that, the law, act, sorry. that law that allows... Basically, yeah. what it does is that how it's different is instead of charging each person individually for a crime they did, they charge the whole organization for like anything anyone in that organization has done and then mm-hmm. force them to take plea deals. You know, the low, the burden of proof to indict people is really low. and They still have yeah. to prove some things when they're indicting people and sentencing people individually, but they're under immense pressure and facing 20 to life sentences. So it just like if a lot of the cases of my sources, if they were caught in a regular non-state conspiracy or federal law, they'd be out in four days. But this whole time you have that specter of, you know, going to jail or not yeah. hanging over you. And like the jails, Gary, like their stabbings and of solitary confinement and all this different different stuff. went from preparing for a final in my house in Connecticut. I just picked my son up. We were basically going around Bridgeport promoting to stop the violence event. Went back to sleep. I probably slept for one more hour. And then boom, 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 boom. Like, what, what's going on? Like, what, oh, we got a warrant for your arrest. Rikers Island, there's a lot of fighting. This one is a lot of killing. They gonna kill you. They playing knives in there. So in one of your video pieces, you were talking to an individual by the name of Craig. Can you talk to us a little bit about his story and sort of like, you know, there's this bigger picture of what's going on, the systemic, you know, gross abuse of power. How does an individual get involved? And sort of like the the breakdown of the story there. Um, Craig Lewis um, grew up in the Bronx uh, near East Chester Gardens Housing Project. And he was a friends with a lot of the people who grew up in the projects. Uh, his mom is a single mother who's a nurse. Compared to other people in the indictment, he had a lot more educational opportunities. He went to a Catholic school, um, like a private Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think growing up in the projects, like, you also had to surround yourself with people who are tough. Otherwise, you can potentially get stabbed. Yeah. But, uh, so just to, like, talk through, like, I think we talked a little bit about the reporting process earlier. And I kind of, like, want to go through my reporting process for this story, which is very not straightforward. Mm-hmm. I met Craig. I saw Craig at this sentencing uh, hearing by accident because I had to cover a court case and then this happened and I was like oh this is a story so I went to the clerk's office and like was like okay can I have the court documents for this for this case and then she was like um the person was like yeah this is the big indictment right and she just like um she like didn't give me his court record she gave me the court records of every single person indicted under his uh same indictment um how many pages and- were that uh, it's a shopping cart's worth of documents. 
Fantastic. So I yeah, so I like looked through everything, oh and then God. the courthouse and the it's a federal courthouse, so you're not allowed to have any computer, any electronic devices. So it was like literally a notebook, old school, old school. <laughs> so I just like started writing down all cases that I found was interesting, and I wrote down those names, like their parents' names, like emails um, of people, and just kind of like any detail I can find to like reach out to these people. This um, is like legit unsexy hard work right here but it took me months to like reach craig and like wow. a lot like i wrote to a lot of people but a lot of people don't trust reporters also that's another thing um of course so that was like and craig's it happens he was released i uh, we went to dinner and i was like look i was writing your story as a print word story but like would you be interested in like me doing a documentary on you and your journey out and he was like yeah, he was down. And the, st- and the story is still developing, right? You're still working still on it. Still developing. I'm still working on it. And Craig is kind of the best source you ever want because he also introduced me to his other friends who were also indicted and, like, vouched for me. Um, for the most part, all of the sources who are also in the indictment that I met when they first meet me are very suspicious and very, like, who is this girl? Who is this Asian girl? And, like... I heard a yelling match at some point, mm-hmm. Craig trying to convince them to talk to me. Was there ever a point in your, as you got to know Craig better, was there ever a point where you felt like, oh, maybe, I know you said that he was the be- he's basically the best source ever, but was there ever a point where you were worried that you wouldn't be able to get the kind of access um, that you eventually got? Oh, yeah. Like, my advisors were like, you need to touch down, you need to touch down, because I had all of these, like, expert interviews with professors, but, like, I didn't What do you mean by touch down? Like, you, like, actually talk to your source, who uh, are, okay, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of people have tried to do the story before and failed. Also, like, other people in my past documentary class, like, there's a reason also why the story hasn't been told, because it's so hard to get the access, and I think that's the one thing people, my professors, are really happy with my work with because of my access. Um, like, access is everything in documentary. If you don't have access, especially for documentary work, because you literally have to, like, shove a camera in people's faces for a really long period of time. Um, <laughs> so you need to get the trust. So you need to get the trust. And I got lucky. I don't know. I mean, like, I think being Indonesian also really helps in the sense of, like, you know... There's certain mannerisms of, like, respecting people in a less, like, transactional way, like, building that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, relationships in Indo takes time, so I, I'm not the type of person to rush into things as much. And I always give people a choice what they feel comfortable doing. So, like, I always, like, ask them, would you feel comfortable being a part of the story? I think it's really important. You don't mm-hmm. have to answer me right away. So, like, giving people the agency to decide what they want to do with their stories, I think, is really important. And sometimes I think Americans are just, like, give me, like, have a certain level of entitlement a little bit. Like, not all, but, like, some people do. Um, And I think the fact that I'm also a minority um, helps. And I always talk about, like, the fact that, like, you know, like, in Indonesia, like, um, the criminal justice system in Indonesia doesn't at least pretend to be just. Like, you pay a bribe and you get out. It's not yeah. like the U.S. where it's all about presumption of innocence until you're proven guilty. And, like, I'm a minority in Indonesia. My grandfather was a political prisoner. I lead with that. I talk about... I tell them about myself and, like, what my motivations are for doing this story. Mm-hmm. This is not 
like a bourgeois, like, oh, this is so fascinating kind of thing. Like, I feel like my family and where I'm from, I'm very aware of systemic mm-hmm. systems of repressions. And that's why I'm drawn to these kind of stories, because it's the hardest kind of stories to deal with. And it's the kind of stories that are happening everywhere. happy to be to find something I'm really passionate about and I just really want to tell listeners please like appreciate journalists out there I think it's such an unappreciated underappreciated job and And often under attack job yeah so like if you have a journalist friend just tell them thank you for trying (laughs) thank you Steph for trying not thank you for refunds. Thank you for trying. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, I work banker hours and, like... But you don't get like paid banker journey. money. <laughs> yeah, I work banker hours. And I think, for me, it's like, yeah, bankers get a bad rap, but they at least get paid. Second <laughs> of all, bankers, for the most part, they have some level of control over what you do in your product. And in journalism, it's like you're literally relying on people's kindness to talk to you and give you their time. Because you cannot pay your sources. It's like a big no. So you're like literally (laughs) begging people to like talk to you for nothing except getting their stories heard. I mean, that's why... And like that's... That's why those relationships matter, right? That's why it's like... Sometimes I'm like, God, thank you so much, but why are you talking to me? Like... Uh, yeah, that's, that's, anyway. um, that's why I've been kind of on and off with Dialogica this year. I hope my life will be more balanced this year. I need to figure out how to do that. We all hope for that, too. <laughs> Thanks, Sway, for holding on the fort. But, um, yeah, that's, that's my life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, dialica.id. Music credits to John Dealey, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Broke for Free. Also, as a heads up for our listeners in Indonesia, we're entering Lebaran, so we'll be having a little bit of a break, and we'll be back at the end of June with the latest episode. So we might have something like a bonus episode to tide you over, but in the meantime, enjoy our 50 episodes. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at dialogicapod. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's Steph Tank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again and see you guys next time. Bye!